0: the postcard epistle, Jude, the last in this series. I'm going to read the whole letter to you, so follow in with me and then we'll pray and we'll get into the first four verses together. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to, you, to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who, who did not be, believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual morality and gone after strange, strange flesh, are are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And however they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried away by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots." Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also saying, Behold the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way. And all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, complainers, walkers according to their own lusts. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you. That there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, build up, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to prevent you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be as sober-minded and hopeful as Jude is. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to contend for the faith, and we pray that you would use this morning to remind us how valuable it is to be in the faith, how precious it is to be yours. Lord, we pray that you would teach us today that you bless our fellowship together today. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and all who agreed said, Amen. 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 Right now, every single one of you, no matter what you believe about anything, right now, all of you are acting in faith. Amen. Sure. You're acting in faith because sitting down is an act of faith. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. When you sit you believe that that chair will hold your weight. You do. You seriously believe. Now, there's good evidence. It doesn't take a great faith to do sitting, but you still have to do it. I know from my own experience, there's been times when I've sat in chairs and they didn't hold my weight. No comments, please. This is a fact. Now, now here's the thing. If I say to you, do you value that chair? You'd say, yeah. I say, do you believe that chair can hold your weight? Yeah, of course, I'm sitting in it. Do you think that chair is important? Well, yeah, I guess. It wouldn't mean that much to you. And it wouldn't mean that much to you, not because you don't believe, but because you don't think sitting is that big of a deal, because it's pretty easy to find a place to sit, isn't it? But the, here's, here's the thing, we, we have to know what we believe And we have to value whom we've put our trust in if we're ever going to contend. If we're ever going to be the ones who are willing to to suffer, who are willing to, to defend, who are willing to endure with the difficulty of what it means to be a Jesus follower. Now, when Jude writes this little letter, we don't know for sure who he's writing to, but we do have an idea that he knew who he was writing to. And we have an idea that he obviously intended from the text, he intended to write about... Their common salvation. We'll talk about what that means in a second. But he said, look, I had to kind of change gears and I had to exhort you guys to contend for the faith. And so the implication is the people he's writing to are people whose faith or who, who's, who, who have false teachers among them who are trying to undermine what they believe. They're trying to, in a sense, take the chair out from underneath them. They, 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 they're wanting to, to get them to put their faith in something other than who Jesus is and what he's done. That's a really serious thing, isn't it? Now, he, he, he starts off by just identifying himself, Jude does, in, in verse 1. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now what I want to to do today is I want to kind of ask three and answer three main questions. The first one is why should we value Jesus? And and the first answer is because of the person who wrote this letter, because of Jude. See Jude has an amazing testimony of transformation. Now we know that Jude is, is the brother of James, that would have been James who wrote the book of James and we know that Jude and James were the half brothers of our Lord Jesus. But neither Jude nor James ever said Jude, the half-brother of Jesus or James the little bro of Jesus. They never identified with our Lord from a human level. And what's even more interesting is that part of their, both of their testimonies is they initially didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They didn't believe that Jesus was God's chosen king, the Messiah. They definitely believed believe he was God's only son. We know this because of what the scripture says in John chapter 7 that Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem for a feast and uh, his brothers were all heading in that direction and they're saying, why don't you just come up with us and then you can, it says here, you can do these things, these miracles supposedly that you do and show yourself to the world and they're mocking him because it says plainly for even his brothers did not believe in him. And so, and so they didn't, there's a, there's a time in the ministry of Jesus, not just growing up, but in the ministry of Jesus where his own brothers didn't believe he was God's only son, that he was the Messiah, God's chosen king. But then by the time we get to Acts chapter 1, we see that all the believers are, are together and they're all praying, waiting for the day of Pentecost to come, the, come, the time when Jesus would, when God would send his Holy Spirit. And in next chapter 1, it's happened already is Jesus, of course, has been crucified as he predicted. He's risen from the dead and shown himself many times as he predicted. And then in front of many witnesses, probably including his brothers, he ascended into heaven and they saw it happen. Do, yeah. And when they saw who Jesus was, when they saw the resurrected Jesus, they knew they had been wrong. That Jesus wasn't just their big brother who had a chip on his shoulder. Jesus was actually the king of kings and lord of lords. He was the Messiah. And it changed both their lives radically. They were radically transformed. So much so that that Jude went from this kind of doubting brother to being a deliberate bondservant, someone who's a slave by choice. He says, this is how I'm going to relate to Jesus. No longer, hey, bro, but now, hey, you're my master and lord. I am going to follow after you. So he identifies himself like this and it reminds us that one of the reasons we value Jesus is because Jesus is in the business of radically transforming lives. I went to, you guys well, you know the story, but when, uh, many years ago I went to a class reunion, very American thing that we do. And I went to this class reunion and, and I was a little nervous because I hadn't seen most of these people since uh, I graduated high school and I became a Christian right after I graduated high school. And so I walk into this big room, it's it's like a a club and there's a a bar and all this and I'm kind of looking around the room and and I notice that people are looking at me and they're smiling and I don't know if it's a smile of mockery or they're glad to see me, I'm not really sure. And I noticed in the corner there's a table of, of people who I know at least many of them were Christians in high school. A few that I didn't know that we're Christians but many who I did so I thought that might be safe and so I walked over to those people first <laughs> and one of the guys that I didn't realize was a Christian he said to me hey John how's it going good to meet you I heard God's done great things in your life Hallelujah. and I'm like whoa, whoa wow and I'm like, did, I didn't know you were a Christian. How did you become a Christian? He said, I went into this church with a, with a girlfriend I had at the time and I didn't really want to be there. And the guy starts talking about this guy named John Brown whose life had been radically changed. And, and, I, and I thought, I know that guy. And I thought to myself, if God can change that guy, he must be worthy to be believed in. Amen. True story. Hallelujah. We underestimate... We underestimate how important it is, how valuable it is that Jesus changes lives. And often we underestimate that because we resist his change in our own life. We're holding back when God wants to do something radical. But also we should value Jesus because listen, Jesus is what Christianity is all about. Look at the way this this greeting goes. Jesus says he's writing to those who are called, sanctified, and preserved. What does that mean? Well, to be called, it's this idea that we've been entrusted, we've been invited to trust Jesus. That's what we've been called to. We've been invited to trust Jesus. When he says we're sanctified, it means that we've been set apart because of Jesus. It says that we're set apart uh, uh, by God the Father, definitely, but we'll see in a minute. We're also sanctified uh, because of Jesus. When he says preserved, it's the idea that we are, it says in the English version, preserved in Jesus, but we can just as easily say preserved by Jesus. You say, well, come on, John, that sounds nice, but maybe it works for your outline, but is that actually what the scripture teaches? Check this out. John chapter 10, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus does the calling of invitation. You need to know something. If you're not a Christian today and you're considering becoming a Christian, it's not about joining a church. It's not about saying a prayer. Even getting baptized, that's a great thing to do. It's about responding to the invitation of Jesus who says to you by His Holy Spirit, Come, follow me. Those who respond are the called. They've heard the invitation and they're following Jesus. What about the sanctified? Jesus prays this in John chapter 17. He says, For them I sanctify myself that they too may truly be sanctified. Sanctified just seems to be set apart for God's purposes. Jesus came and he, and he submitted himself to the Father's work, including dying a death he didn't deserve, but we did. And he did that so that we could be set apart as holy for God. And John again, and, and uh, Jesus said again in John chapter 10, the verse, next verse after 1027, 1028, after he says, my sheep follow me, he says, I give them eternal life, and notice, they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Christianity is about Jesus, the Jesus who calls us to follow him, the Jesus who made a way for us to be set apart for God, the Jesus who keeps us until we see the Father face to face and we're radically changed at our own resurrection. This is what Christianity is. This is why we should value Jesus. Contending for the faith is not just fighting for the right to believe what you want. It's not a bad thing, but that's not what this is talking about. Contending for the faith starts with us valuing who our faith is in, seeing Jesus as the very object of our faith. That we want to follow Him. We believe we've been called. We're responding to the call to follow Him. We know He set us apart for His purposes through His death and resurrection. And we know He's keeping us Until his kingdom comes in its fullness. This is why we value Jesus. But not just this, not just that, but also from the greeting in verse 2, we also get this idea that we should value Jesus because he's the motivation to keep growing. Notice he says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, he's not talking about concepts, because concepts aren't necessarily multiplied. He's talking about realities, He's talking about an experience of these things. Well, what are these things? Let's, let's make sure we know what we mean or what Jude means by mercy, peace, and love. Mercy is, you, you can define mercy as a tenderness of heart that disposes a person to overlook an offense and treat the offender better than he or she deserves. That's mercy. If you read the Gospels, you can read any of the four Gospels, you're going to see see Jesus' life characterized by mercy. And he was merciful not just to people who were victims of sin, it wasn't just like the compassion he had for those who had been sinned against. He was merciful toward perpetrators of sin, to people who did offense, to people who were offensive to God to people who are offensive to him. He showed mercy. Think about even the fact, those of you who are already Christians, think about the fact that you've been called by God to believe in Jesus. When you called, let's be honest here, when you were called by God to believe, were you going, you know what, I'm really considering follow Jesus because I'm a a pretty good person and I think he's a he's a pretty good guy so you know what, I've weighed everything up and that's how I'm gonna follow Jesus. Was it that simple? Or did, or did you get surprised by a God who actually loves you, who wants to know you? God who calls you in His mercy. You need to understand something. The Bible teaches that before we become Christians, we're actually enemies of God. Not God making us His enemies, we've made God our enemy. We've rejected His authority. We've said you're not going to reign over us, we're going to do what we want to do. But we serve a God who loves his enemies, who shows mercy to those he should destroy. Jude's praying, may that mercy that God's shown you be multiplied to you. Peace. Peace speaks of uh, a harmony and relationship. That's how uh, Greek scholars would, would define peace. The, the, uh, the word in Hebrew this is obviously written in Greek but the Old Testament word for peace It's the word shalom you guys probably know that word shalom is this not just that it was a greeting that they would give to each other shalom and they would say I can't say that in Hebrew basically sh- sh- they'd say shalom in, in God's name basically and, and, and the idea of shalom or the idea of peace is not just like I hope you feel good it's I hope all things as are they're meant to be that you don't just have the, the 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 lack of hostility. So when we talk about peace, we might think, okay, it's so good to be to never have known war that we're only in peace, that we don't have great riots in the streets right now, or no one's dropping bombs on us. There we have peace. But that's not what's meant by peace biblically. It's way bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Peace is. Listen. Peace is. Not just a lack of hostility, but an active relationship. Things as they're meant to be. The best they can be between you and others. The Bible teaches that we have peace with God, even though we were his enemies, because of what Jesus has done. Then listen, listen. He also talks about love. Now, love is so much bigger than we think. In fact, this is why we're taking all of church camp to talk about love. But, but just suffice it to say, when he, when he uses the word love here, he's talking about speaking of God's commitment to us and our commitment to him in response. That's what he means by love. Now, in, in this greeting, notice, he's saying, may these things be multiplied to you. May you experience God's mercy every day. It's new every morning, the scripture says. May may the fact that you have peace with God show itself in this relationship where you have experienced a peace from God that surpasses understanding. May that be multiplied to you. He says, may not just be aware of God's love in an intellectual sense, but may you have that shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. May you be experiencing God's love for you more and more each day. This is what he's calling you. This is what he's, he's praying for those who are reading this. Now, we're talking about the fact that we should value Jesus. Jesus becomes the motivation for us to pursue this multiplication. He becomes the, the, in, the motivation for us to, to pursue this increase. L- listen to what the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews 4 it says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, that is Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to what we believe. We believe Jesus' death and resurrection makes us right with God. That we have peace with God because of his death and resurrection. Let's hold on to that. He says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. In other words, he has compassion for us. For he faced all the same, t- same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. In other words, listen, this is important. When we recognize that all that Jesus has done for us, he becomes our motivation to seek the face of God. And as we seek the face of God, you know what we experience in multiplication? Mercy peace, and love. You see, the the, the issue is, if you are lacking those things in your life, if you're lacking the experience of mercy, if you still have the sense of God's waiting to squish you, then do you actually understand what Jesus has done for you? Are you pursuing God knowing that Jesus has already done it all? Do you recognize that His mercy endures forever? And that mercy is yours because of Jesus. If you're lacking peace, I'm not saying that your life is is meant to be all hunky dory and everything's working fine. Oftentimes that's not the case. But God promises a peace that's better than understanding, a peace that's not based on our circumstances, but based on enjoying a right relationship with God. Do you have that peace? Are you accessing God for that peace, because Jesus has made it available to you? And love, we give lip service to love, and again, this is why we're spending the whole week at church camp talking about it. But do we understand how amazing God's love is for us, how complete and everlasting God's love is for us? Are we experiencing this? You see, Jesus is our motivation. The only thing that's gonna keep you pursuing God is knowing that Jesus has already done all that needed to be done to make you right with God. That he's the guarantee of God's mercy for you. That he's already made a way that you can have peace with him and that he is the guarantee that you're loved by God. You're not gonna move forward unless you believe that. That could be why you're not moving forward today. God's saying believe it. Believe Jesus. This is why we should value him. Now, we get to verse 3, and he talks about now this, this phrase, he uses this phrase, the faith. And, and we use that analogy early on about the chair, that you're exercising faith because you sit, you're sitting in a chair. Okay, when the Bible refers to here as the faith, it's not the act of your sitting. It's the chair itself. Do you follow me? So in other words, when it's talking about the faith, it's not saying, oh, look at you. You, you, you need to contend for the fact that you sat down. No, it's talking about the faith, you need to contend for the fact that that chair is actually going to hold your weight. You need to hold on to that. You need to defend that. And so he talks about the faith, he wants us to understand what that is. We need to understand what that is. So, second question, how should we understand the faith? Well, notice first of all, he says, he says, Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you, verse 3, concerning our common salvation. Or this, you could also say the salvation that we all share. He could say that. Now, here's what he means by this. And this is really important to understand. When, when, when Jude writes about a common salvation, a salvation that we all share, we need to recognize it is for everyone or anyone, but it's not for everyone. And it's really important to know the, the difference here, okay? The, the, the faith we talk about is both inclusive and exclusive. Let me explain what, those, what I mean by that. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, For we are all children of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus, for all have been united with Christ in baptism. Uh, uh, or, I'm sorry, all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. Notice, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. In other words, it's inclusive in the sense that it's not about a person's race or their social status or their gender. That's not what makes a person a Christian. That's not what makes a person in the faith. In fact, one of the unique things about Christianity compared to other religions is a lot of other religions don't translate well to other cultures because they're culturally based religions. Now, we study the culture of the New Testament because we want to understand the meaning of the writings. But what's amazing about it is once we understand the meaning, we see that those meanings apply to every single culture so the gospel of Jesus the good news about Jesus is applicable to anybody anywhere and anyone whosoever would believe can be saved anyone it doesn't matter if you are a person who who, who, who you know it doesn't matter that you're a person of of, uh, of any sort of religious origin or any sort of, of ethnic origin it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor educated or not educated none of those things mean a hill of beans What matters is that we put our faith in Jesus, that we believe what He's done for us. It's so important that we recognize this. But we also need to recognize, listen, that it is exclusive. The faith is exclusive. Not everyone is a child of God. He says we're the children of God through faith in Jesus, which means if your faith isn't in Jesus, you're not a child of God. Listen to this. This is uh, Peter preaching to uh, Jews who hadn't believed in Jesus. And here's what he says in Acts chapter 4. He says, Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where he says, the stone which the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Later on when Paul's preaching the same gospel, he's preaching also to Jews and basically they don't want nothing to do with it. And so he says since you have rejected it, that's the gospel, and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to offer it to the Gentiles. Now This is important to understand because we are called to offer Jesus to anybody, to demonstrate Jesus to anybody and everybody. Because we know that anyone can be saved, can be made right with God through Jesus, okay? We also need to know that everyone is. And this is the thing that really bothers people. People don't like the exclusivity of the gospel. It makes them frustrated and uncomfortable. We, we, we don't like absolutes unless we create them. Then we're okay with them. But it's important for us to see when we're talking about the faith that Jude's really clear. He's talking about that which is most inclusive and most exclusive. Also, he says in verse 3, he says, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly. Now, that phrase, continuously, it's one word in the Greek. It's in a very, very strong word. It's, it's, it's the idea that you're sort of wrestling with somebody, and it's a, it's a life and death matter. It's a very strong word. It's, a, it, it's like, it, it, the, the root of it is this word agony, where we get the English word agony, agonosia. It's so where we get this word agony, but there's this, this uh, phrase in the beginning, epi, which means it's like over the top. So it's like you are wrestling, like your life depends on it. It's this picture of someone's trying to kill you and you're going to fight to make sure it doesn't happen. It's that strong. Now, the thing is, he's calling us to contend without being contentious. You know what I mean by contentious? Contentious is when you're always looking for a fight. This is something that God had to Uh, to sort of work I should say maybe that God is kind of squeezing out of me. It's easier now that I'm older and I'd probably lose if I got in a fight but I have to say I walked around after even after I was a Christian kind of looking for a fight kind of hoping someone would persecute me so I could hurt them in Jesus name (laughs) because I was contentious I like a good fight I like confrontation this is how I am personally God's changing me he's gracious and he's changing me but this is how I am apart from Jesus it's not a good way to be. Contentious is not a good way to be. Contending is a good thing to do. Let's look at some wisdom from the past. A guy named Matthew Henry, who was a, is a really great uh, Bible commentator from a century ago. If you want to get a hold of him, he he wrote this. He says, "Those who have received the truth must contend for it, as the apostles did." And here's how they contended for it. Notice, by suffering with patience and courage for it. Not by making others suffer if they won't embrace every notion we call faith or important. See, see what religion does is religion says, "Hey, believe what I say or I'll kill you." But what faith in Jesus says is, "Look, I believe what Jesus who Jesus is, and if you don't believe it, you can kill me because I'm willing to die for this." That's what he means by contending. John Wesley, you guys probably all heard of John Wesley, famous evangelist from a couple centuries ago. He wrote this, It was needful to exhort you to contend earnestly, yet humbly, meekly, and lovingly. Otherwise your contention will only hurt your cause, if not destroy your soul. So though the the, the intention is is heavy, though the the need to, to contend is serious, we need to make sure we're not being contentious. The faith is something that we are sure of and confident in, therefore, we don't want it to be compromised. You don't want people to get Jesus wrong. Now, this is also important to remember because when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about something that is clear. We're talking about something, the faith is something that we all agree on, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But consider this, this quote from a famous London preacher from again a century ago, Charles Spurgeon. All the old dead guys know better than we know now, I think. He says, "Upon other matters, there are distinctions among believers, but yet there is a common salvation enjoyed by the Arminian as well as the Calvinist, possessed by the Presbyterian as well as the Episcopalian, prized by the Quaker as well as the Baptist. If you don't know who those people are, you're blessed. Those who—they're <laughs> just titles, man. They're just—they're just labels. Those who are in Christ are more near of kin than they know of, and their intense unity in deep essential truth is a greater." force than most of them can imagine. One of the reasons we are so disunified among the visible church is because we take secondary issues and exalt them above primary issues. We take issues that have nothing to do with salvation and make them as if they did. It's a very dangerous and destructive thing to do. That's right, amen. That's right. Now we're called to contend for the gospel. This is part of our holiness The author of Hebrews writes, we need to pursue peace with all people and holiness because without holiness no one will see the Lord. This is what we mean by being, by contending without being contentious. That's what the faith is about. It's what we contend for, not what we're contentious about. Also this faith, notice what he says in verse 3. He says, this faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this was written, Jews written, we don't know for sure, but maybe in around 70 A.D., maybe, maybe somewhere around there. We don't know for sure. But when this was written, okay, he's saying, this is before we even had the book of Revelation, so when this was written, he's saying, we already knew enough to know exactly what truths need to be believed to be saved. Think about that for a second. The faith was already delivered. This is important. It's important because... This is an unchanging thing. In fact, one of the first letters written in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians. And this is what Paul says about the gospel in 1 Corinthians. Notice, listen. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declared to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you also stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain for I deliver to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel. The gospel is who Jesus is, what he's done as the scriptures reveal it. That's the gospel. So serious is this gospel So authoritative is this gospel that Paul says in Galatians 1.8 that if we, that is the other apostles or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we preach to you let him be accursed. You see, the reason we we, we take this book so seriously is because, listen, it's not because it's a magic book, but because the, the apostles themselves, the prophets themselves who wrote these things down from God said, listen, it's what God has said through us that's more important than us. This is the authority, what God says. This is the gospel. And so it's important that we see this, that we recognize this. Some of you guys might have in your home library, Erdman's Handbook of the Bible. Good little reference if you have it. Well, the one who, the publishing company who started that, uh, publishing that is, was started by a guy named William B. Erdman. Here's what he said. Listen. He said, there's no other gospel. There will be none. Its content will be more, more fully understood. Its implications will be developed. Its predictions will be fulfilled. But it will never be supplemented or succeeded or supplanted. See, see, people can have insight that is new, but not a gospel that's new. People can understand the scriptures better, but not add to the scriptures. Are you following me? This is really important for us to understand. How should we understand the faith? We should understand this reality. It's not, it's, it's for everyone, but it's not for everyone. It's what we contend for, not what we're contentious about, and it's unchanging, but it's not undisputed. People are always going to attack the gospel. We need to understand this. In fact, this brings us to the the last point, the last question we want to ask and answer in verse 4. How do we prepare for the attack? If we have to contend the idea is there's going to be an attack, how do we prepare for that? Start doing press-ups or something? I mean, what do we do? Here's what we do. First and foremost, we need to expect these attacks to come within the church. Not from the outside, but from the inside. Listen what he says. He says, For certain men have crept, have, past tense, crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. That last phrase we'll talk about in a couple of weeks' time. But notice what he says. He says, men are in your midst and you haven't even noticed it. These false teachers, these people who want to undermine the gospel, they're already in your midst. We need to expect that these attacks are going to come. This is common. It's always been part of uh, of the attack of the church. The foundational truths of the gospel have always been attacked. They've always been believed and they've always been attacked. Here's what the Apostle Paul said to the leaders of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now some of you guys think, gosh John, you're a little bit over the top. Hey, I'm not crying night and day with tears saying, look out for false teachers. But Paul did. Because he knew as soon as he left, these guys would go, oh, there's not that protection, so we'll kind of, we'll get in there. Interesting, what we know from history is that these Ephesian elders that he wrote this to, they end up kind of collapsing under the weight, and he had to send Timothy to raise up new elders. That's kind of a side note, or maybe just an important application. Church, you need to be praying that we have elders in this Church. Not just me, I can't be the only elder man. But men who love the gospel, love Jesus, who will help guard God's people against attack. I'm really thankful for the godly men in this church, specifically the house group leaders who do a lot of that. But pray that we have elders, we need them. Now, so we need to expect that these attacks are going to come within the visible church. But also, look at also at verse 4. He says, these are ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. You could translate that word lewdness to, this is a big word now, you guys ready? Licentiousness. How many of you guys have used that word in a sentence this week? Licentiousness. I sense that's licentiousness. No, no one's probably used that. What it means is this. It means giving yourself license to do evil. And what Paul's saying is one of the ways that we recognize or prepare for the attack is to be able to identify perversions of grace. Because listen, grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is God giving to us The righteousness of God that we don't deserve because of Jesus. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. If mercy is not getting what you do deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace. We can only relate to God by grace. We can only be saved by grace. But grace does not give us an excuse to sin. And people who teach that or act that's the way, those are the kinds of guys that we need to identify as that's false teaching. Listen, the Apostle Paul was all about grace. No one wrote more about grace than the Apostle Paul, but look what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, don't you realize that those who do wrong, it might be better translated, those who practice wrong, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, they won't go to heaven. Now, we we, all of us look at that list and we go, I'm so glad I'm not like that, and we pick out the ones that we think are specifically disgusting to us. Any greedy people here? Any abusive people here? See, see, here's the thing you need to understand. This is why I pointed out that it might be better translated practice, because saving faith, when we believe in the grace of God, part of that belief, part of that faith, is constantly turning away from our sin and putting our faith in Him. We need to practice repentance. See, see the the issue here is not about those who are sinless, because none of us are. All of us are guilty of one of these things, if not many. All of us struggle with these things. But the question is, do we turn back to God and say, God, forgive me? Do we repent? Do we get accountability? Do we look to grow past these things? Because don't be deceived. Don't go, well, I'm saved by grace, brother it's okay and don't listen to those guys on television or in the pulpits who tell you it's okay you don't have to repent you're saved by grace that's a lie Amen. That's right. Thank you. it's a lie we need to identify those are perversions of grace man guys God's grace is far far greater than you can imagine you don't even know how much you've sinned against God and neither do I But His grace is all-sufficient and that grace should motivate us not to indulge in sin, but turn from it. That's the gospel. Notice he also says, last part of verse 4, we're almost done. He says, and they also, these false teachers, they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea here is very simple, they're denying the authority of Jesus. We sing what a friend we have in Jesus, and it's so true. Jesus called his disciples friends. He is a friend to us indeed. The book of Hebrews refers to him as kind of our older brother, the one who went first. He's also our high priest. He's also our savior. But above all that, what is he? Lord. Lord means ruler or master. That might be uncomfortable to to our modern hearing. Master, ruler, slave, that sounds unjust. Until we realize the kind of Lord he is, the kind of master he is, that all that he commands us is for our benefit. Listen, Jesus himself talked about how foolish it is for us to call him Lord and not do what he says. Listen to this. Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. This is the the good example. He says, it's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. So when the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. That's the good thing. Notice the guy who, the person who who hears the word of God, he hears Jesus' words, he uh, uh, he listens carefully and he wants to follow Jesus, so he follows after Jesus, and guess what happens? The storms still come, but he's able to stand because the Lord has him. What about this? Here's the other person. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey, oh, I like John's sermons, they're okay, but doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation. And when the floods sweep down against that house it collapses into a heap of ruins. Can you see why Jude is so serious about us contending for the faith? If Jesus is who he said he is we should value him above all things, even our own lives. If Jesus is who he said he is he, we really can be transformed by Him. We really can know this is what it means to be a Christian. It means to follow after Him. We really can be motivated to keep growing because we know one day, soon and very soon, we're going to see Him face to face. And all the things that we desire most, loving God the way we should, loving others the way we should, it's all going to be brought to pass because of His work. And if we really believe these things, if we really understand the faith, then we should be willing to fight against anything that threatens it, that would lead anybody away from it. I know this is heavy stuff. I know that it's hard for us to think about these things. We'd rather just talk about things that make us feel good. But don't you see this is part of the problem? Our our world is is thrashed. It's broken. It's not getting better. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is the only Savior. The church can't save you. Your family can't save you. Being a British citizen isn't going to save you. Only Jesus can save you. Let's fight to make sure he remains supreme.